Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And you can also find me on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, TuneIn, all of those places. And I also have a blog that you can check out. I think there's some good stuff there. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is Monday, December 6th, 2021. And we're going to leave this Constitution Committee in the rearview mirror and move into this Division I Transformation Committee, which is where the rubber meets the road. The stakeholders outside of the Power Five, the non-Power Five interests, have all gotten what they wanted out of this. And it's going to be set it and forget it for the NCAA National Office. And its bureaucracy has been guaranteed at least through 2032 through the March Madness contract. And then outside of the NCAA National Office, you have all of the downstream beneficiaries of the March Madness welfare checks, namely the lower-level Division I interests that don't have a revenue-producing product, and all of Divisions two and three, which likewise have no revenue-producing products. So they are solely reliant on handouts from the March Madness money. They've all been bought off. All those interests have been bought off. And we are now moving into the most important phase of this makeover in the regulatory authorities and governance structure of the entire college sports marketplace. Place, and that's happening under the NCAA umbrella, but this is a Power 5 show. And what I want to do in this episode is to talk about the composition of this transformation committee, because that is very important. And remember, this comes from Division 1, and Division 1 already has a governance board. It has the Division 1 Board of Directors, which is really one of the two most powerful boards under the old NCAA regulatory system. You have the Board of Governors, and then you have the Division I Board of Directors. And although it appears that both of those boards will survive this makeover, the Board of Governors has had a fundamental change from 21 voting members down to nine. And it remains to be seen whether the Division I Board of Directors, which now has 24 members, will be restructured in a way that protects Power 5 interests. And I think when you look at this transformation committee, it's very possible that's where the makeover of governance at the Division 1 level is headed. So we're going to really take a sharp eye to these changes here and look at the composition of the old Division I Board of Directors and then the composition of this new Division I Board of Directors. And some very, very important themes come through that. I just want to 
preview those so we can keep an eye on that as we're going through the numbers. I'm going to be throwing out some stats here and I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. But I think the numbers speak volumes and they really expose some of the themes that have been operating beneath the surface for a long, long time in college sports. And I have talked about that in many different contexts throughout this podcast. The Power Five, or the powerful football interests, I should say, however they've been constituted, whether it is the Bowl Alliance, the Bowl Championship Series, or after conference realignment and the consolidation of power into the Power Five and then the college football playoff, whatever that looks like for big-time college football interests, they have been driving the train behind the scenes. And that is a direct product of the 1984 Board of Regents decision in which the powerful football interests achieved their financial freedom from the NCAA, which used to have a an absolute monopoly over televised football. And the market since that transformative decision in 1984 has never been the same. And I have said in prior episodes that what has happened in the evolution of the Power Five, particularly with the autonomy movement in 2013 and 2014, and that's going to be very important in looking at this transformation committee, because that movement, the autonomy movement, is the template, I think, for what's going to happen here. And I'll talk more about that as we get into who's calling the shots under this transformation committee. And when you go back and look at some of the rhetoric that surrounded the autonomy movement in 2013-2014, it is virtually identical to the rhetoric that we are hearing now from Power 5 in-system stakeholders. And this talk about trying to control the destiny of the Power 5 rather than letting these external forces dictate what the college sports marketplace is going to look like. And the potential beneficial byproduct of this transformation and the delegation down from the NCAA to the Power Five is that some of these behind-the-scene actors and influences are going to be brought out of the shadows and into the light. They should be subject to more scrutiny, but that remains to be seen, and that's going to be dictated in large part by whether this incestuous sports media is going to cover the Power Five with some of the same skepticism that they've covered the NCAA. And there's been very little skepticism, but the NCAA has been an easy target. And it is like the the big lumbering blimp that you, you can't miss. The target's so big, you can't miss it. And through this transformation, the NCAA is no longer going to have the bullseye on its side. It's going to be the Power Five, or it should be. And it should have been the Power Five all along because they've been controlling the shots behind the scenes all along. But, you know, remember, the NCAA only deals in national championships. It does nothing with respect to regular season programming. And because of Board of Regents, it has nothing to do with the CFP or the major ball games. And as we have seen in these discussions about the expansion of the CFP, and that's a hot topic now as we're, as we're heading into this year's CFP, but the football marketplace is growing rapidly and the end of season bonanza payoffs, the multi-billion dollar deals, similar to March Madness, they are coming into maturity in 
the football market and the football market is going to explode. I think what we're going to see with this next CFP contract, whatever that looks like and whenever it happens, and I'm going to talk about that too because there's been some infighting, I think, between the SEC and the rest of the college sports world. When you look at this transformation committee, this isn't just a Power Five show. This is a Southern football show, and more particularly, a Southeastern Conference show. This is an SEC show, and they are calling the shots here. They hold the positions of power. And I think that as the SEC goes now, so goes college football, so goes the college football playoff, so goes all these massive contracts, particularly with ESPN. And some infighting over the CFP is taking place here, and who ought to be in, who ought to be out, who's gets guaranteed slots. We're going to talk about all of that stuff, but that is all part of this transformation. And at the very beginning of this podcast, my major theme was this whole makeover of college sports that has been forced by external regulators, by antitrust suits filed by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits, state legislatures coming in to force the name, image, and likeness issue because the NCAA refused to act. And this movement by the NCAA and Power Five, a joint movement, they were in lockstep here, in Congress to get unprecedented and extraordinary protections and immunities that, if granted, would have made the NCAA untouchable as the National Regulatory Authority. And when I started my blog in 2019, those issues were just coming into focus. And when I started my podcast in March of 2021, those were all live issues. And some of those have been at least temporarily resolved, but not fully resolved. That's also relevant to where I think this transformation committee uh, may be headed when we look at the antitrust liability issue and then what's going to happen in Congress. But the central question in all of the milestone events that were coming together to create this perfect storm through 2020 and 2021 wasn't really whether athletes should be paid or even how much they should be paid, but who gets to decide. And up until the absolute failure of the NCAA's campaign in uh, the Austin suit, where it tried to get absolute antitrust immunity, it's failure in the United States Senate to eliminate state legislatures, to take them completely off the table as a potential regulator in college sports, and their failure to get this provision that athletes can't be deemed employees. And then free market forces coming into effect when the voluntary nil movement fell apart because Mark Emmert never intended to have one through NCAA voluntary rules changes. He thought he was going to get protection from the Senate and the House, and when he didn't get it, he just dropped all his nil garbage at the feet of the institutions and went with a home rule approach to name, image, and likeness. And you have to remember that before the complete meltdown of the NCAA and losing on all of those issues, at least temporarily losing on all of those issues, but prior to that, the NCAA wanted to have sole authority to be the decision maker in college sports. And that was the the fundamental uh, purpose of its campaign in Congress to eliminate external regulators completely from the college sports regulatory field. 
And they were close to getting that. So I think one way to look at this is through the NCAA's arrogance and incompetence under Mark Emmert's leadership. They have forfeited the right to run college sports. And this is now going to run through the Power Five. And what's happening here is a power grab. So now, instead of the NCAA being the sole regulatory authority in college sports and having the freedom to decide what college sports is going to look like, that now will reside with the Power Five. And when we look at the uh, composition of this committee, you begin to see how prominent the Power Five's voice is going to be in the future of college sports. So what I want to do now is look at the comparative composition of the existing Division I Board of Directors and then the new Transformation Committee and then look at the consequence of some of the changes that are being made right now in the face of Division I leadership. So let's start with the existing Division I Board of Directors, and I want to look at it in terms of who actually sits on that board and where they come from and what interests they represent. So there are 24 members of that board, Of these 24 members, 20 or 83% are university presidents. And that is so important because the structure of the existing NCAA governing boards, the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors, are the product of this movement by university presidents, really going back to the mid-1980s, but really into fruition in the early 90s through the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics and that seminal report in 1991 called Keeping Faith with the Student-Athlete, in which the commission recommended presidential leadership and control of intercollegiate athletics as a way to bring some sanity back into this irrational relationship between the money-making sports and football and men's basketball and the mission of higher education. As a result of that initiative and the momentum that it gained in the early 1990s, in the mid-1990s, the there was a complete makeover of the leadership in the NCAA governing boards. And you had both the Division I Board of Directors and the Board of Governors, which at the time had 16 members. They were loaded with university presidents and chancellors. In fact, the Article 4 of the NCAA Constitution that relates to organization requires crossover representation between the Division I Board of Directors and the Board of Governors. And so you've had university presidents sitting on both boards, you know, both boards dominated by university presidents and then a, a critical mass of university presidents that were sitting on both boards at the same time. And it's just a, a ridiculous conflict of interest. And I, I've talked a lot about that. That seems to be a thing of the past under the new constitution and the reduction in the board of governors from 21 to 9. And then I think in this transformation committee, you're seeing that university presidents are less and less relevant. And I think a pretty clear acknowledgement of that is this new constitutional provision that talks about the composition of the Board of Governors. 
And in this reduction from 21 to nine members, it requires only one president to, to sit on the new board of governors. And as I have said time and time again in this podcast, the movement towards presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics has been a miserable failure. And the professionalization and commercialization of college sports, which the presidential movement was designed to pull back on, has increased at an alarming rate. If you're looking at this through the lens of the traditional academic stakeholders and you view big-time college sports as fundamentally incompatible with the mission of higher education, then you have to look at what's happened in the last, I don't know, 30 years under the presidential leadership and control model and the last 20 years when we've had former university presidents as president of the NCAA, and they have just pressed the gas on this. And the acceleration of the professionalization and commercialization of college sports and the growth of the marketplace has occurred under their watch. And they came in to replace the athletic director types and the conference commissioner types. And now we're seeing a reversion back to the athletics directors and the conference commissioners. And I just find that really interesting. But again, that was one of the themes of this autonomy campaign in 2013-2014 that, yeah, they paid lip service to presidential leadership, but the uh, movers and shakers behind that really, I think, were skeptical of the president's ability to be good stewards of big-time college sports, regardless of how you you view the enterprise, you know, as, as good or bad for higher education. But the presidents were in the way because they had accepted this responsibility, this symbolic responsibility to be responsible for the conduct and control of intercollegiate athletics at the institutional level, but they weren't doing a whole lot to really exercise that power. And uh, the only thing worse than bad leadership is having no leadership because the people assigned to lead refuse to do so. And I think that's exactly what has happened with university presidents. So the other four members of this, the existing Division I Board of Directors are uh, one athletics director, one senior women's administrator, and then one faculty athletics representative, which is this faculty liaison between the uh, academic side and the athletic side at the institutional level, and, but they're really protecting institutional interests. And then you had one token student-athlete rep that didn't doesn't have a vote. And that really is interesting because what's missing from that list? Conference commissioners. Conference commissioners don't have a seat on the Division I Board of Directors, yet this new transformation committee is being led by none other than a conference commissioner. And I think that alone speaks volumes about what this transformation means and what it's going to look look like going forward in terms of who's really calling the shots. And again, these conference commissioners have actually been calling the shots for a long, long time, but they've been doing it behind the scenes. And the power of their influence at the business level in big-time college sports has been masked by this presidential leadership and control campaign. But I believe they are now in the driver's seat. So you have 20 presidents, one one athletics director, one senior women's administrator, one faculty athletics representative on this current Division I board of directors, and not a single 
conference commissioner. So let's now look at how those 24 seats are distributed on the existing board of directors across the various stakeholder groups within Division One. And as I see Division One, there are really uh, four basic categories of interests. And the first are the Power Five. And again, that's the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC. And they have autonomy status. They have a unique status under existing NCAA legislation. And they got that in 2014. And that's really important because that separated them from the rest of the big-time college football marketplace, which is defined by the football bowl subdivision class which has 10 conferences. You have the Power Five, and then you have this group of five, which, let's see if I can identify these. You have the Sun Belt Conference, the American Athletics Conference, and Cincinnati's in the AAC, and they're going to be in the CFP, just to give you an idea of the kind of schools that are in these conferences. Then you have the Mid-American Conference, the MAC Conference. Then you have the Mountain West Conference, conference. And then you have uh, Conference USA. So those are the conferences and the schools within those conferences that want desperately to be in the Power Five. They want to run with the big dogs. And as I explained in uh, prior episodes, part of this autonomy legislation, although it was disguised as trying to do something good for these athletes and we want to improve the student-athlete experience, the same old propaganda. In fact, what it did was it created an insurmountable competitive advantage for the Power Five relative to this next group of contenders, the, the group of five. And that has worked quite well for the Power Five, and they can preserve that if they choose to under this transformation. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So that's really the upper echelon of college sports, the FBS conferences, but particularly the Power Five conferences. And then below that, you have the football championship series. And these are conferences and schools that field football teams, but they are not in the big-time college football sweepstakes. And the Ivy League is a good example of that. They're in the FCS uh, category. So that's the the third tier in terms of the business of big-time college sports. And the Ivy, Ivy League doesn't give athletic scholarships. I think that is or was true with the Patriot League. So you have a different way of thinking about this. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Ivy League because I think that they have a prominent voice in this new transformation committee. And I think there's a reason for that. And I'll talk about that and a little bit more about the history of the Ivy League. Because when people hear Harvard, Princeton, and Yale football, they don't associate that with Clemson or Alabama or Michigan or Ohio State. But the fact of the matter is that the those Ivy League schools really set the template for big-time college football, and they owned the football marketplace in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century. And then in the mid-40s, they just said, we're out. We're jumping off the treadmill. They did what the University of Chicago did in the 1930s and 40s when uh, Chicago left the Big Ten and just said, no, we're done. We're, we're, We're out of here. I think that in this transformation, 
process, this Division I transformation process, I think it's possible that some of these schools who just look at the big-time college sports marketplace and get a pit in their stomach, and I'm thinking that there are leaders in the Ivy League who, who see it that way. Are they going to go out and form their own association? They could do that if they wanted to. They don't get a whole lot from uh, being under the NCAA umbrella, I don't think, and they certainly can afford to do whatever they want to with their athletics departments. But I think having an Ivy League representative on this new committee, as I'm going to discuss, is, is important. And if they get buy-in from that group of schools that are uniquely situated in Division One, I, I think that's important in trying to, trying to preserve this big tent buy-in to this power grab by the Power Five. And then below FCS, you have the, the rest of Division One, And I would say that this is a basketball-oriented tier of Division One. So the Big East is a good example of that. And the Big East historically has been one of the best basketball conferences along with the old ACC and that was the ACC that I grew up with and loved so much and I'm a Tobacco Road ACC basketball guy to my core and the Big East has preserved that identity through odd circumstances because they tried to jump into the big time college football sweepstakes by picking up a bunch of football schools in the early 2000s when the BCS was coming into to its full strength and then through this crazy conference realignment process that took almost 20 years in the 1990s and early 2000s, the football programs that the Big East picked up in order to stay relevant in this game of high-stakes musical chairs, they got uh, really picked apart by the ACC, and the ACC came in and took all those football products, and now the Big East is back to really its original roots as a basketball conference. But they don't really have a football product. I think there are a couple of schools in the Big East that might have a football program, and then they compete outside of the Big East with their football product. But you have the, these conferences, classes of conferences that really are focused on basketball, but in terms of their power within the NCAA, it's marginalized because they're not part of the big-time college football sweepstakes. So those are the four interests. And on the existing Division I Board of Directors, the Power Five have six of the 24 seats. And I'm excluding the athlete because that athlete doesn't have a vote, and that was a, a Power Five representative, but not a relevant one. So you have Six of the 24 or 25% of the members of the existing Division I Board of Directors are Power Five. The group of five, this group that's nipping at the heels of the Power Five, they have five representatives on the existing Board of Directors, and that's 21% of all seats. Then the Football Championship Series folks have five representatives. That is 21% of the overall board. And then the Division I schools, the schools really that aren't in the big-time football sweepstakes or in in big-time football at all, they have six seats out of 24. So again, 25%. So when you look at how the votes on the existing Division I Board of Directors are allocated uh, across those four tiers, the Power Five doesn't have controlling authority. And to the extent that in this transformation, there are differences between the Power Five and the Group of Five, and there will be, I think, and that's playing out right now in discussions about expanding the college football playoff field. The Power Five don't have control of that narrative. And so one of the central questions in this transformation committee is, why do we need 
a new committee. We have a governing body for Division One. And this has been the governing body for a long time. It's had enormous power. And the powerful football interests have pretty much gotten what they want. But now that there's going to be this further separation out of interests, you all of a sudden have this new transformation committee. Why is it necessary? Do we really need an entirely new body that's almost the same size as the old body? Why can't we just run this through the existing Division I Board of Directors? And that is a very good question. But when you look at these numbers, and that's why I'm going through them, the Power Five doesn't have control of the narrative under the existing Division I Board of Directors. And there are going to be substantial differences of opinion among the four tiers within Division I. And I think notably allocating authority between the Power Five and the Group of Five. That's really going to be an important component of all this and then getting buy-in from these third and fourth tiers, the FCS and then the basketball-oriented conferences. So if, if you're the Power Five, if you're the SEC and you're looking at your chessboard, running these fundamental transformative changes through the Division I Board of Directors, the existing Division I Board of Directors, isn't a winning strategy. And there are just a thousand different ways that things could go off the rails and you could actually wind up losing power rather than gaining it. So what I want to do now is turn to this transformation committee. And it's important to understand that this is formed as a committee, which means that it exists under the Division One Board of Directors. And that means, I think, that this transformation committee and whatever it recommends would have to be approved by the existing Division I Board of Directors. And in that sense, there's going to be some delicate politicking here as the transformation committee does its work. And it's not clear procedurally how this came together, but I just want to talk about who is on this committee and, and why it's so important. So you have 21 people on this committee and the types of representatives on this committee is just fundamentally different from what you see on the existing Division I Board of Directors. So on the old Board of Directors, and I say old Board of Directors, it still exists, but I think that under this transformation committee, you're going to see a new governing body for uh, Division I, uh, Division-wide. It's going to look more like the transformation committee than the current Division I Board of Directors, but you had 24 seats and 20 occupied by university presidents or chancellors. On the transformation committee, you have 21 seats and only six are occupied by university presidents. And the Power Five presidents are big-time college football insiders and big-time NCAA insiders. And it is a very powerful group. Then on the old Division I board of directors, you had only one athletics director on the Transformation Committee, you have six athletics directors. Then on the old Division I Board of Directors, you have zero conference commissioners. On the new Division I Transformation Committee, you have four conference 
commissioners. And then let's see, on the old board of directors, you have one senior women's athletics representative. On the new transformation committee, you have two. And then on the old division one board of directors, you had one faculty athletics representative. On the constant, I'm sorry, on the transformation committee, you now have two. And as with the old division one board of directors, there's one student representative on this new transformation committee. And it's the same gentleman, Kendall Spencer, who testified for the NCAA in early 2020 and then was on the Constitution Committee, and now he's being brought forward. I'm going to talk about that. When I talk about the student voice that the NCAA and Power Five are making so much of here, and this Constitution Committee has been making so much, I'm going to talk about Mr. Spencer and his involvement in all of this. So real quick, just looking at this on a percentage basis, under the old Division I Board of Directors, you have 83% are university presidents under this transformation committee, this new committee, 29%. Under the old board of directors, you have 4% athletics directors. There's only one on this new transformation committee. You have six or 29% of all members are athletics directors. And then, of course, you have the conference commissioner, zero on the old board and four on this new committee, 20%. And then the rest of the numbers are really inconsequential. So now let's look at the representation across these four tiers within Division One: the, the Power Five, the Group of Five, the Football Championship Series, and then the basketball-oriented bottom tier of Division One. So on the old Division One Board of Directors, you had six out of 24 or 25% of the representatives in the seats being held by the Power Five. In the Transformation Committee, you have 11 or 52% of the 21 seats being held by the Power Five. So the Power Five goes from a kind of an equal share member uh, among these uh, Division I interests to a controlling member under this transformation committee. That's so important. The Power Five votes on this new transformation committee are enough to get any measure, any item passed by a majority vote. And that is so, so important. Now, the group of five, this group of powerful football conferences that are nipping at the heels of the power five, they have four members on this new transformation committee, or 19%. Under the old Division I Board of Directors, they had five members or 21%. Their interests are pretty similar, but boy, they've lost a lot of ground to the Power Five. Then the football championship series, that uh, third tier of lower level football schools, they have three seats on this transformation committee, or only 15% of the seats. Their power has been reduced. Under the old board of directors, they held five seats or 21%. And then these lower level basketball oriented interests under the uh, new transformation committee of the 21 seats, they get two or 10%. That is a substantial reduction from the old division one board of directors where they had six seats or 25%, which is, I believe, a way to express the minimized role of basketball interests here. 
And this is a football show. And basketball, high-level Division I men's basketball, is simply not going to have a seat at this table. They're the bargaining chip in buying off the other stakeholder interests under the broader NCAA umbrella. And now with this transformation committee, I want to take this analysis down to another layer. And that is who the Power Five representatives are. So we've got 11 representatives from the Power Five. And I want to go conference by conference and and make a few observations here. So let's start with the ACC. The ACC representatives are the chancellor of North Carolina State, who also sits on the NCAA Board of Governors and the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. And I think that's consequential because NC State has been in the crosshairs of this nasty enforcement and infractions action arising from the basketball scandals in 2017-2018. And I think NC State's pushing back. But you have a university president or chancellor filling that seat. Then the other ACC representative is the ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips. And I'm going to talk more about him. So those are pretty heavy-hitting interests for the ACC. Now let's go to the Big Ten. The Big Ten has two representatives as well, but not nearly as powerful as the ACC representatives. And so the Big Ten has an athletics director from the University of Maryland, not a traditional Big Ten powerhouse. They came in at the very last minute under the final phases of conference realignment when they left the ACC and went to the Big Ten. But uh, let's face it, uh, Maryland in the Big Ten culture is not Ohio State or Michigan. And then the other Big Ten representative is Northwestern's senior women's administrator. And again, not a high-level position in the conference-wide administrative structure. Let's go to the now the Big 12. And the Big 12 has Linda Livingstone, the Baylor president, who's on this transformation committee. And she's been all over the place. She's been on the tour, the, the propaganda tour for the Power Five and for all of the NCAA Mark Emmert interests. She, she, her role here is really interesting. And um, it's going to be fun to see how this transformation committee plays out and what it recommends. But then you also have an athletics director from uh, West Virginia who is also in the Big 12. So you have a university president and an athletics director. Then with the Pac-12, you have an athletics director from Washington State, and then you have a a faculty athletics representative from Cal Berkeley. So not exactly a heavy-hitting list there. You've got a, two members there, two members so far, two members from all, all these four conferences, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12. But the heaviest hitters among that group are in the ACC and the Big 12. Now let's go to the SEC, and what do you have? You have the SEC commissioner, Greg Sankey, who many think now is the most powerful man in college sports. You have the University of Georgia president, Jerry Moorhead, and he is the chair of the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. So he had the authority to put this transformation committee together. And he then named the two co-chairs, and they are 
Greg Sankey from the SEC and Julie Comer from the MAC, a group of five conference interest. And that, I think, has strategic value that I'll, I'll talk more about. But this is going to be a Greg Sankey show. I'm going to talk about that in just a second here. And then you have a third representative from the SEC, and that is a senior women's administrator from the University of Florida. And I didn't really do a demographic profile of the Division I Board of Directors, but it is a substantially white and substantially male, as all these governing bodies are. But let's take a look at the demographic of the Power Five interests under this new transformation committee. And again, there are 11 Power Five members, 11 of the 21. So that is a majority of members from the Power Five. You have, let's see, eight are white, 73% are white. You have two African-American members, that's 18%, one Asian-American, and that's 9%. And then the gender breakdown is eight men and three women, so 78% male. And that's not a good number for these powerful interests. Neither, none of these numbers are, are good. This is a white male show. And I, I look at this, and I just am immediately reminded Oh, that December 2019 meeting where the Power Five got together quietly to express concerns and talk about strategies in Congress because they weren't crazy about Mark Emmert's leadership or the NCAA's approach to trying to get these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And there were 15 people at that meeting, all men and 12 uh, white men, including some of the very people who are on this transformation committee. So again, when you're looking at these small power bases, of who's really calling the shots here? You're talking about an extraordinary small group of powerful inside decision makers who are going to determine the future of college sports. And that yet this is being run through this NCAA big tent philosophy, which is a fraud. It's just a complete fraud. Let's see. Let me just go through some of the leadership positions here because that is so important. You have the chair of the Division I Board of Directors, the current chair who put together this committee, who is an SEC university president. And I guess I have a disclosure to make here. I went to law school at the University of Georgia after I finished up at Duke. I was very fortunate to have been taught by Professor Moorhead, then Professor Moorhead, now President Moorhead. I have enormous respect for him. I'm going to talk about some of my biases in another episode and talk in some detail about how I approach these issues, what I focus on in forming my opinions. And so I've had some very interesting relationships as they relate to the regulation of college sports. And I haven't been in touch with President Moorhead for years and years and years. So I have no current information, have no idea how he's thinking about these issues. And the same is true with my connections to Duke. I don't have ongoing conversations with people at Duke on the athletic side about the future of college sports. So these are my opinions informed mostly by my research and, and I think careful study of the work product that's come out from all of these in-system stakeholder interests and the, my research on the legal side and then the congressional side and all that. But I'm also informed by my experience. 
And again, I'll get to all that in a separate episode. And as I've mentioned in prior episodes, it's been Southern football that has really pushed change and sometimes imposed change on the structure and regulation of big-time college sports. And that goes back to the sanity code right after World War II. And now you have these interests that have evolved, but in some ways they haven't changed that much. And I see that, I think, in this transformation committee and the allocation of power and the types of people that are coming from, say, the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 on the one hand, and then the the Big 10 and the Pac-12 on the other. And that reflects a historical rift that played out through the Board of Regents era, then raised its head in the COVID era on the fall football decisions. And I think it's reflected here in a very subtle way in the composition of this transformation committee. And in that regard, I want to talk about an interesting omission from this transformation committee, and that is the Big Ten representative on the Division I Board of Directors. And that is Wisconsin-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank. And Blank was a go-to person for the NCAA for really the last several years in its antitrust litigation and then in its congressional campaign. And Blank is also on the Board of Governors, so she wears a bunch of hats. Uh, She's similar to Linda Livingstone in that regard, and I think Livingstone's kind of assumed her mantle as a female face for Power Five and NCAA interests, but you know, Blank testified in the Austin case, and she was NCAA right down the line. And then she also testified in the September 15th hearing in the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee, then chaired by Lamar Alexander, a Republican from Tennessee who's since retired. But Blank really was the go-to person, and she's just disappeared. I'm not quite sure what's going on there, but her absence from this transformation committee is interesting to me, and the Big Ten representatives simply aren't of her stature. So let's look at some of the other people on this transformation committee, and then I'm going to close this out with just some of the themes that I think are pretty obvious from the the composition of these two bodies, the old Division I Board of Directors and this new transformation committee. So I've mentioned President Moorhead, Greg Sankey, and I may do a separate episode on Sankey, and he's going to feature prominently in my discussion of the relevance of this autonomy movement in 2013-2014, because he was important in formulating the strategy there and the thinking behind autonomy. And I'm going to go back to some of the material that I used in that episode 23, including presentations by big-time football interests to the Division I Board of Directors, making the case for autonomy, and then a letter from the Pac-12 that laid out their case for autonomy. And of course, then you had that Mark Emmert testimony in July of 2014, where he got beaten up. Jay Rockefeller, the Democrat from West Virginia, was the chair of that committee. That was a commerce committee at the time, and he just didn't like Emmert. (laughs) But Emmert was carrying the bags for the Power Five, and I, I think he always had. And you have to remember that Back in 2013-2014, the Power Five were threatening to leave the NCAA all 
together. We'll talk all about that. But So let me just go through this roster here and just point out some of the people that I think are going to be important and, and why they are important. So you have a couple of representatives from the Big East, including Jack DeJoya, who's the now the chair of the Board of Governors, this association-wide governing body. And he appears to be all on board with these changes. It's not clear to me what the Big East gets out of this, what DeJoya gets out of this, but they also have an athletics director from the Big East. So that's one of the things I, I'm bookmarking things to pay attention to as this committee begins its work. And, and that's one of them. Then the other thing is the comparative power between the Power Five and the Group of Five. And what kind of buy-in are we going to see from the Group of Five? And again, we have a co-chair, this Julie Comer from the MAC conference, which is really a Midwest conference, similar to the Big Ten geographically. And I'm guessing that she's going to be on board with where this thing is headed. But it'll be interesting to see if any Group of Five interests, either those on the committee or more importantly, those outside the committee, start raising questions about the direction of the transformation committee. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I think the Ivy League's inclusion here is very important. And so we have the equivalent of the Ivy League conference commissioner. Robin Harris is the the executive director. And I think that's going to be an interesting window into this group of stakeholders in Division I that might have the greatest incentive at this transformative stage in college sports to just step outside the talking points and say, wait a minute, we've lost our way and we want to just do our own thing and make a statement here. And that would be a powerful statement, I think. I could be way off base there, but I just I just see that and it sticks out, honestly. You have to have the, the FCS represented here. and But the Ivy League, having that run through the Ivy League, I think is, is important. If you get buy-in from the Ivy League, then you have uh, credibility. And then, of course, we have Linda Livingstone, and she's very, very important here. And she has been throughout these debates. And I've been real hard on on Linda Livingstone, in part because she has assumed the role of propagandist for the interests that are swirling beneath all of the the rhetoric about values and the student-athlete experience and, and all this stuff. And she's just gone out there and just taken some positions that I think are very difficult to defend. And it's going to be interesting to see where, where Baylor lands on the back side of all of this because that uh, rift between the SEC and the Big 12 after the SEC picked up Texas and Oklahoma I think was real. I think there's some resentment there. Bob Bowlesby's voice has been minimized uh, because Sankey kind of ate his lunch and he was doing what he was supposed to do. That's his job. I talked about that. I think the episode was deja vu all over again for Southern football because Southern football is the maverick. They were forcing the change and Sankey went out and did what was best for his conference. That's his job, you know. And but now in this new role, he's supposed to be doing what's best for Division 1 and really for college sports because all of this power has been sent down from the national level to the divisional level. So the role that Sankey's playing here is much different and he's wearing multiple hats. He has conflicts of interest just like Linda Livingstone does and that's going to be a, a, an interesting tightrope for Sankey. And we're going to pay attention to that as well. And then Jim Phillips, the 
commissioner of the ACC is uh, an interesting pickup here because you had the ACC and the Big Ten and the Pac-12 form this alliance. It's the alliance that has no purpose. That's how I I view it. And Phillips is new. It's not clear what clout he's going to have. I said all along that in these conference realignment discussions, the ACC is vulnerable. When you look at it historically, you look at how it is currently constituted. It's among the least stable of the Power Five conferences, and they've just, they're having a terrible year. (laughs) Not that that in and of itself matters, but I don't think the ACC is in a position of strength right now. Their football season was a train wreck, and their basketball season is Duke and the rest of the ACC right now. So it remains to be seen what kind of power there. But when you look at this roster and you're looking at it through the Power Five lens, I think you can make the argument that the interests of the ACC, the Big 12, and certainly the SEC have been prioritized and that just based on the absence of high-level representation among Big 10 and Pac-12 interests, those two conferences are perhaps marginalized a bit. So again, we'll see what happens here, but those are the big picture issues that that I am going to be paying attention to, and I'm going to talk more about specifically. And all these open questions that Linda Livingstone mentioned in that interview, the social series propaganda interview with Andy Katz on November 19th. But I think there are some things that are pretty clear here from the composition of this transformation committee compared to the Division I Board of Directors, and that is this overwhelming influence of university presidents and chancellors is done. We're done. The presidential era of leadership and control over intercollegiate athletics is done, and that's true even though you have all this lip service being paid to institutional control and presidential leadership. And that last provision of the new draft constitution is on institutional control. And it says on paper that the presidents still have the final responsibility. But you know, going back to this survey, and you look at this Constitution Committee survey, and only 37% of Division I presidents bothered to even fill it out. And it was a 20-minute survey. What does that tell you? It tells you that that is one aspect of the regulatory model that absolutely needs to change. And it looks like that's going to happen. And I think that's a good thing. But again, the interests of these conference commissioners and these power five movers and shakers are going to be more transparent now because the NCAA isn't going to be this easy target. You have so much of the market activity in big time college sports being done completely outside of the NCAA. And it's a very limited role. The limited role it's always had since Board of Regents. So all this money that's moving, all these important decisions about contracts with uh, all these mega media sports entertainment behemoths, all that's being done at the conference level. In that Austin case, this expert report by Dan Rasher, which was built around conference competition as an alternative to the NCAA's monopoly over the regulation of college sports, was really saying out loud what insiders have known for decades. And that is that in the grand market of big-time college sports, the NCAA's involvement in the March Madness money is a small component. And it's getting smaller and smaller as the football component is getting more and more valuable. And again, I think that is reflected in the composition of the this transformation committee. So we are in some ways being a little more honest 
about some of the elements that have always existed post-Board of Regents in the regulation of big-time college sports and the business of big-time college sports. But the, what comes along with that is that the Greg Sankeys of the world and the Linda Livingstones of the world and these conference commissioners and high-profile athletics directors, they're not going to be able to hide in the shadows of the NCAA and let the NCAA be the kind of institutional shield to take all the shells that, that come in from critics. The Power Five is going to be in the hot seat, I think. And how the media covers this change in the regulatory model in college sports is going to be interesting too, because the the big time sports media and say ESPN, for example, they are into the SEC and the ACC and the CFP to the tune of billions and billions and billions of dollars. They had the luxury of being able to take some shots at the NCAA because the NCAA and the grand marketplace of big-time college sports is a pimple on, a, on an elephant's butt financially. But they're in up to their eyeballs in the regular season programming, in the college football product, in the CFP and, and the ball games and all the big money payoffs in big time college football. And then you have all these surrounding media interests that are so intersticed into this marketplace that operates independent of the NCAA that it's going to be real interesting to see if people look at the Power Five and look at some of the tactics that they've employed in conjunction with the NCAA, particularly in their initiative in Congress and in, and in federal courts through the lens of athletes' rights, I don't see the Power Five being in control as being a better option for athlete interests because when it comes to eliminating the athletes' rights movement and taking regulatory control over college athletics out of the hands of federal courts, out of the hands of state legislatures, out of the hands of free markets, the Power Five have been lockstep with the NCAA. And that's why after I talk about some of the consequences of the uh, composition of this Constitution Committee, where I think it's going to go using autonomy uh, as a template. We're going to have to take a good hard look at what the congressional campaign is going to look like. And again, I don't think it's going to be much different at all from what we saw with the NCAA in 2020. And I'm going to go back to some of those hearings and some of the proposed legislation from 2020 to show the extent to which the NCAA's platform, congressional platform, was identical to the Power Five. It's going to be uh, interesting to see how they repackage that, but they are going to be going back to Congress because these antitrust threats and the uh, state laws are, are still a problem at the regulatory level if you want to sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation. So then it was the NCAA, now it's the Power Five, but the issues are the same. And it'll be interesting to see how the Power Five handle that and then how the media covers it. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close this episode out. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about this autonomy template that was set in 2013-14. Look at both the substantive uh, goals that the Power Five tried to achieve there, but also the means through which they achieved it at the rhetorical level, at the propaganda level, and do a compare and contrast with that campaign and then what the template now looks like for this 
new transformation committee. And I think that there are a lot of similarities. And as I said with the, in this last episode with Linda Livingstone, she threw out all these open questions, important questions about the relationship between the national office and the membership now and the divisions and then the enforcement and infractions process and what the governance structures are going to look like within Division One. And yeah, those are open questions. But again, I think that the basic template for this Power Five power play has been in place now for over eight years. And this is really bringing to fruition a rolling power grab by these powerful football interests that started in 1984. And this is the logical endpoint. This is a logical endpoint, but now the Power Five is going to have to step again out of the shadows and into the light, and that's going to be an interesting transition. All right, so I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Mm-hmm.